His faithfulness is great, isn't it? His mercies are new every morning. And we're reminded of these things when we go to Him in His Word. And so I encourage you, church family, let's open up our Bibles to Romans 14. And Lord willing, we'll finish Romans 14 this morning. confident we will. Romans chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 and invite you to follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, or you can follow along on the screen. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let that what you regard to be good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, this morning marks the fourth week of looking carefully at, at Romans 14. And while it's uh, taken us a little longer than I anticipated to uh, work through this passage, um, I think in God's good providence, it's, it's been good for us. It's been good for us to, to slow down and deeply consider the biblical instruction given to us concerning the matters of the conscience. Um, I can't recall um, in... Uh, the times I've been preaching here where I've gotten more interaction from you uh, than as we've been dealing with these, these passages, and it's all been good, uh, so don't hear that in a, in a negative sense. I, I've been very encouraged as I, I've seen us wrestle uh, and, and, and look with, I hope, anticipation to, to see what other elements that we can consider. And, and so uh, I've said this numerous times, and I'll, I'll say it again, I think the principles of this chapter are indispensable to guarding and maintaining the unity of the church. They're not exclusive, there are other principles, but we cannot neglect these things and expect the church to continue to be built up in the unity of the Spirit. Last Sunday, I spent a large portion, most of my time, setting up or qualifying what is meant by matters of the conscience. Or as, look in, in verse 1, as Paul puts it this way, uh, quarrels over opinions, disputes. In other words, we're, we're, not, we're, we're, um, we're not talking about disagreements with the core essentials of the gospel. 
in the Christian faith, but particulars over differences of understanding or, or even conviction. And so with this in mind, Paul gives several instructions, particularly in verses 13 through 23, instructions to the mature in faith. And how to deal with those whose conscience may not be as biblically informed as yours is. Listen to these instructions. First, he says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. He says in in verse 15, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Or again, verse 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Then verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake, you might say, of your liberty. All this is a negative way of saying what he says in verse 19 positively. Verse 19, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so that last phrase, mutual upbuilding, it's important because it highlights the goal. It, it highlights the aim, what we are, are going after, what we are to pursue when dealing with someone who, who disagrees with us. Or, or that, that might be even too strong of a, of, of a description. That certainly applies there. But even maybe you see someone who, who doesn't quite understand something um, uh, biblically. Or, or maybe their understanding of it isn't as refined as it should be. Our goal isn't to pounce on them as quickly as possible and shake any, anything out of them that we just, oh, I, don't, I can't listen to that. No, we, we pursue peace. And what's going to be best for mutual upbuilding? I just think for a moment, none of us likes to be corrected, do we? Anybody love that when someone sits us down and says, hey, I want to speak into your life? No one likes that. Especially when someone does it when you're caught off guard, Right? But yet, sometimes we, we, we don't treat others as we would like to be treated. The moment we hear something that doesn't just resonate with us the way we would like it, we're quick to correct. But the scripture says we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And so where I want to encourage us this morning as we come back to these principles is how do we pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? What's the best way to handle those situations it's going to encourage. Encouraging the right things in the right ways. And, and so the goal is, is not primarily to get someone to agree with us. We're not the standard, although we may be right in a certain case. The goal is not, oh, think like me. No, the goal is understand what Christ has said. And so much so that my conscience and my understanding aligns with his, so be it. But I'm more important with you being like Christ than being like me. And when we understand that, and that will exude itself in love and patience and kindness and forbearance, the fruit of the Spirit, well, then we're walking in true maturity. So this morning, I want to look specifically at how we pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And And I see here in these verses, 13 through 23, three principles that will guide us through, I think, any disagreement among brothers and sisters in Christ so that we do not destroy the work of God being accomplished in this church. And these three principles consist of priorities, as you might put it. 
And this is wisdom. I, I know when to, what's the right thing to prioritize. And we're going to see we want to be prioritizing love. We want to prioritize the kingdom. And we want to prioritize faith. Let's look at the first one again, and this will be by way of review because I, I touched on it last Sunday. We want to, if, if we're striving for true biblical maturity, and this is wisdom accompanied with knowledge. This is applying wisdom. The truly wise prioritize love. We see that in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If we're trying to change people whose conscience is biblically uninformed and we do not have love, well, we very well could destroy them, he says in that passage. And we saw that last week. What does he mean? What, what kind of destruction is he talking about? Well, he's, he's talking about imposing your convictions, your conscience upon a weaker brother and sister in such a way that could cause that one who is weak in the faith to go against their conscience and consequently sin against God. To go against your conscience is to sin. He calls it uh, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And so if we, we want to change somebody, fix them, correct their doctrine, correct their practices, loosen them up a little bit without informing their conscience with love, well then actually we're just training them to numb their conscience and just get with the program. And if we do that, we are training them to go against what they think is being obedient to God. And that is a dangerous path to go down. See, when we shame someone or presume or pressure someone to adopt our liberty or even a certain theological position or practice that goes against their conscience, we're, we're training them. Even what is good, we're training them to disobey God, at least in their mind. That's what he means in, in verse 14. I'm convinced that nothing is unclean in of itself, but it is unclean to the one who thinks it's unclean, even though they think wrongly. And so when we understand the danger of numbing the conscience, and we, and we now, moving from last Sunday to this Sunday, continue to act with disregard for the weaker brother or sister, or the one who may not be as biblically informed as you, well, then there's really no excuse for us. We are not walking in love. If we just expect everybody to just get with the program and we're terse with them. I like what John MacArthur says about the conscience. He, he calls the conscience the spiritual nervous system. The conscience is our, our spiritual nervous system. Now think about that for a moment. Uh, you want your nervous system functioning correctly, don't you? You want it to be very informed. Uh, in other words, it's good that you feel pain, right? You, you know when you feel pain, that's your nervous system working in you, telling you, stop doing that, right? Or something is wrong. Well, it's interesting to note that uh, leprosy... Um, 
is, the, is, a, is a disease which attacks the nervous system. And the reason that lepers, uh, if you're familiar with leprosy or the stories in the scripture, the reason lepers were, were people whose face was literally falling off or their fingers were, were gone or appendages. And, and it wasn't because uh, something was eating away at their flesh and their body. It was rather that their nervous system wasn't working. And as a result, they would literally scratch their noses off. Or they would rub their ear off. If you ever touch something that's hot, you're, you're, you have that natural reaction that pulls your hand back. Well, if your nervous system, if, you're, if you're, your system is, is numb, you don't have that reaction which is there to protect you. And so you may cut yourself if you have this your nervous system isn't working well and you, you don't realize it and it just is getting infected or, or you burn yourself and the and the burns get infected and that was like the compound problem of, of leprosy well in the same way our conscience serves as the nervous system for the soul and if we numb our conscience we can live in sin and not feel it and that's a scary place to be because you don't know it, right? I never want to be in a place where I can live in sin and I don't know it. And that's what happens when the conscience is numb. Paul, Paul speaks of this when he's instructing Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus in, in 1 Timothy 1. We got these passages up on the screen. I just want you to look at this. And this is instructive to us. Those of us who are particularly impatient with people, Listen to how he instructs Timothy to instruct others. He says to Timothy, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. And notice what? A good what? A good what? We're following along, right? Conscience. All right. And a sincere faith. Certain persons, now he's contrasting it, have swerved from these things. What have they swerved from? They no longer have a, a clear conscience. They don't have a sincere faith. They do not have a charge that issues out of love. What has happened to them? They've wandered away into vain discussion. Jump down just a few more verses to 18 and 20. This charge I entrust to you, same conversation, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now notice, by rejecting this, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Some have shipwrecked their faith. And he names two, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Go to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And he's not talking about you, you got a little carried away with Dungeons and Dragons. He, he, he's talking about false teaching. He's not talking about, oh, I decided to join the church of Satan. These people think they're Christians, they've fallen into error. And he's just calling them for what it is it's doctrines of demons. What has happened to them? Through the insincerity of liars, this has occurred, whose consciences are seared. He's expressing this. He's saying, he's warning, he's expressing the, the, the danger, or at least the result of what has happened to those whose conscience has been numbed. 
They are delving into false teaching, the doctrines of demons. Their lives are being destroyed. And so when we come back to our passage here, and Paul's talking about do not destroy the one for whom Christ died, he's talking about don't be an agent by which their conscience is numb. And you and I have to be aware of that. And that's, that's being aware of others, considering another as more important than yourself. Knowing where they're at, what stage of maturity. Are they ready to hear what you have to say? I love Jesus. I love it in the Gospels. He's talking to his disciples. He says, there's many things that I actually need to tell you, but you're not ready. Obviously, he, he knew he's wise. He understands when someone's ready. I'm not convinced all of us know when people are ready to hear the truth. And we, we always think we need to come with a hammer when, when sometimes we, we need to come with something a lot more gentle. And that's what he's getting at here. And therefore, if someone's conscience is numb, or is going that way, and you become an agent for it, even in whatever it is that is good and right, well, then now you're, you're doing what's wrong. And just a word of uh, a note to any of you who are living in secret sin. Maybe you are feeling the guilt and shame of what's going on in your life, and you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You are actively seeking to destroy the nervous system of your soul. And if you continue to do that, your future is going to be far worse than the present is right now. You are moving far away from the Lord. And you could, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, shipwreck your faith. Therefore, out of love for ourselves and even love for our brother and sister, we want to guard the conscience. That's what he's talking about. Loving them. Loving them by considering their conscience, but closely linked, and I know that was by way of review, um, closely linked to prioritizing love is the second principle, that is to prioritize the kingdom of God. The mature, the, the biblically wise individual understands when there's conflict or sees someone who's conscience is not rightly informed by the scriptures, whose convictions aren't rightly shaped, they understand how addressing that situation in a proper way that prioritizes the kingdom. Paul says this in verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And the good here is your liberty. Don't let your liberty, your, 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 your right, as you see that God has given you um, uh, leeway in to eat, drink, watch, or believe what you're persuaded is biblically correct, don't let that thing be spoken of as evil by another brother and sister in Christ who, whose conscience isn't as informed as yours. This is why Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, he says, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Yeah, it's good. Yet, the mature understands how to exercise restraint in their liberty so that the weaker person doesn't think that this good thing of God is evil. Remember, 
We're looking at verse 19 as kind of our goal. What's going to work towards peace and mutual upbuilding? What's going to do that? And so if you and I impose our liberty upon a weaker Christian without their conscience becoming informed by Scripture, you've just caused someone to think wrongly about something that God actually says is good. You've caused them to think of something as evil that that God says is is good. What, What does Paul mean by that? Well, he begins to explain it in terms of the kingdom. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of those things. Even though you've been brought into the, as a citizen of the kingdom and, and now you understand you're, you're free to exercise those liberties, he says that's not the essence of the kingdom. The essence of the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? It's his saving rule and reign over his people in his place. That's what the kingdom is. It's about experiencing the life-giving reign of God in righteousness, peace, and joy. And when he talks about those things, he's, he's talking about the virtues of the kingdom. They sum up the essence of what the kingdom is. When we get to heaven, when the kingdom is come in its fullest sense, we're not going to say, finally my liberties will be exercised. That's not what we're going to do. No, we're going to rejoice and stand in awe and wonder of the righteousness, peace, and joy that is on full display and manifesting itself in all of creation. Right now, the kingdom is in some ways already present in the church, even though we wait for its full expression. We wait for Jesus' return. But it's present now because the virtues or the fruits of the kingdom They are produced by the Holy Spirit in us. That's what we mean by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those are the virtues of the kingdom. We've already seen in Romans 5.5 that God's great love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit that was given to us. Or in Romans 8.5 and 6, we're reminded that the mind has now been set upon the Spirit, which has set us upon ourselves life and peace. You and I, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a member of the New Covenant, we've just partaken in the Lord's Supper by which we we symbolize the fact that we are in union with Christ by eating His body and drinking His blood. That union is made possible and bonded by the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. We have Him inside of us, and He is now working in us the virtues and ethics of the kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy. He's working his kingdom reign in the church through us. Now think about this for a moment as it concerns liberty. If your good liberty or nuanced or refined theological position does not produce the fruits of righteousness, peace, and joy in the body of Christ, you've turned something that is good into an instrument of evil. You've just turned what God calls as good and right into an instrument, verse 20, of destruction. And so if yours and my liberty or particular theological position begins to push people outside of the body of Christ because they don't yet understand, then you're prioritizing the wrong thing. The kingdom of God 
is not about theological disputes. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, you, now some of you are more astute. will say, if you don't have right, right theology, you don't have righteousness, peace, and joy. Well, that's right. But I addressed that last week. We're not talking about having bad theology that's destroying the gospel. We're Another way, let me put it, if your way of insisting upon your right doctrine doesn't produce righteousness, peace, and joy, you're doing it the wrong way. That's what I think is the better way of understanding it. Even though you may be dead on, you may be exactly right. So Paul continues to stipulate in verse 18 who it is that is actually acceptable to God. He says, whoever thus serves. That's kind of an awkward way to write it. He's saying, whoever serves Christ in this way. That's how I would translate that. What's he, in what way? In the ethics of the kingdom. Whoever is walking in righteousness, peace, and joy is acceptable to God and approved by men. You see that? There's a weightier matter involved here. You may have all the right doctrine. You may have every I dotted, every T crossed. But you're not walking in the fruits of the Spirit. You're not acceptable to God. Nor to your fellow man. It's pretty weighty. It's amazing if we grasp this truth. So whoever, weak or strong, is actually producing the fruits of the Spirit, the virtue, living the virtues of the kingdom of Christ, they are pleasing to God. That's why I think back in, in verse, verse 3, he reminds us, let no one abstain, pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This whole basis of of learning to live with one another, even when, yeah, none of us measures up. But we remember God's already welcomed them, just as he's already welcomed me. And that's going to impact how I speak to others. The irony is, is that the so-called strong can begin to press their conscience upon the weak in such a way that they create a new law of acceptance before God. And Paul's saying that's not how it works. They can, they can become just like the Pharisees who strain the gnat over some fine particular, and yet they ignore the weightier matters of the law, of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And they cast out people that, for us, that looks like we speak harshly towards them. We lose patience, or we shame them, or we separate from them. And we're, we're dividing over, over things that may be good and right, but yet you're, you're ignoring the weightier matters. In my, in my experience in the church, and certainly this would be no exception at Oak Park, where the people of God are at, I've never found people not wanting the Word of God. What do I mean by that? I, I see people who, who's, who um, and often this is more my circle in pastoral ministry and, and theological education, who think, well, well, the church just doesn't want sound doctrine. 
They just can't tolerate it. They can't stomach it. They're going to gather teachers around them to tickle their ears. Well, that's true amongst a church that's unregenerate. But a church where the Spirit of God is at, you know, I found that if you're patient and kind and you show them in Scripture where things are, it doesn't mean, oh yeah, all my answer, questions have been answered, but you know what? There's a receptivity. The problem's usually with the deliverer of the message. And they like to just assume that it's just everybody else. I've never found that to be the case in a faithful, Bible-loving church, no matter where they are in the maturity spectrum. If we've got believers here, they want to hear the word. And so if they're not receiving it, and I'm talking about this context right here, if you think no one really wants the word, the problem's not with them, it's with you. That's what's going on. Because I am confident because I have seen God working, and he's been working long before I stood in this pulpit. The Spirit of God moving and guarding this church and leading this church in the truth. It just doesn't always happen at the pace that we might want it. This was going through my mind, particularly as, um, as we started navigating our time through Romans 9. And, and I want you to know, I'm not, there's been no conflict over these things, at least to my, my knowledge. But I'm using this as an example because we've been here. When we were going through Romans 9, if you know where Romans 9 is all about, you know why I'm talking about it. Doctrines of grace, they're sometimes called. Doctrines of predestination and election. When I came to that chapter, I came with fear and trembling. This is surprising to me because as a seminary student, man, I wanted to preach that. That was like the day that I could preach God's sovereignty at full extent, no holds bar. Romans 9 lets you do it. And here we are, and I was dreading it. Why? Well, one, there's always a sense of fear and trepidation when you open up God's Word because I want to handle it correctly. I understand that everything I'm doing right now is influencing. And I'm going to be held a higher standard. I'm going to undergo a, a stricter judgment. So that's always there. But on another level, I feared that I might take that which I am fully convinced of in Scripture and I think is good and right and destroy the work of God being done in this church. That was my number one prayer. Lord, may I handle this in such a way, may I deal with it in, in, in such patience that I do not destroy what you are doing here. Same could be true, a lesser matter. I address spiritual gifts of healings and tongues. I don't think that one's as much controversial here, but I felt the same way. On both of these issues, I know the landscape. Some of you are very comfortable with the things that were taught, say, out of Romans chapter 9. And you want it all the more. You want me to take five weeks on that chapter, not chapter 14. Others of you were like, oh, no, I'm dreading this. I don't want to hear that. I understand. And then there's some of you who are like, I had no idea. These were the first time I'd heard these things. My goal was not primarily to get you to agree with Chase Sears. My goal was to point us to the scriptures that you would begin to wrestle. And yes, 
see that these things are true. But I was under no illusion that after one or two sermons, that those of you who, who may disagree or, or right now that, that was rubbing you the wrong way, that by the end of those sermons that I was so eloquent and everything was going to be so perfect that you would come out and say, yeah, I totally make sense. I, I agree. There must be greater patience. So what was the goal? What is the goal in these matters? Well, that's our third priority. And that is the mature prioritize faith. They prioritize faith. The purpose of learning to deal with one another when we have differences is not so that we defer to the weak and they never grow and nobody enjoys the good liberties of God. That's, that's usually the, 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 the strong's kind of uh, rebuttal. So what are you saying, Chase? Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying we just have to go to the least common denominator? We can't enjoy these things? They're right. They're good. That's what God wants. But we, we got to give up because there's one person here. Or there's a small group here. And I would just say even that type of tone is expressing a lack of love. I would say that's not what Paul's saying. He's not just saying, well... Strong, I'm sorry, you got to walk in love, you just got to give up those things. That's not what he's saying. He's writing these things so the weak may grow. The reason we, we handle these controversial things is so that we grow. He's more concerned with how we handle it, how we speak to it. Again, remember the goal is pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Well, where does peace come? In the truth of God's word. We are eager to maintain the spirit of peace and the bond of peace in the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? Through the word working in all of us. And so this doesn't mean, well, someone disagrees, so we all have to basically chuck it. Well, if that happened, just think about the... Uh, degrading of the church over time. Well, they, because we can't handle mature things, we therefore don't do them. Well, what about the next generation? Well, the things that the weak think are mature, the next generation can't handle, and then they chuck those, and then you have an, an anemic church. It's not what we're going after. We want to present every man mature in Christ. That's what our goal is. And so we want to help the weak and this is true for those who think we're strong, we want to grow in our faith, right? We want to grow in our trust in the Lord. We want to grow in our knowledge and wisdom and the things of Christ. But if our efforts of insisting upon a liberty or even theological conviction don't fuel that, well, then we're in the wrong. So let's look at this positively. We want to pursue a course with one another that lovingly pushes each other to grow up in the faith. We don't want the weak in faith to stay there. But we want to encourage them to grow. And, and the way we encourage them makes all the difference. So concerning the strong, Paul isn't suggesting you give up your enjoying your liberty. Rather, he says that do it in such a way that doesn't cause the other one to stumble. What do we mean by that? Do it in such a way that you aren't numbing the conscience. Rather, do it in such a way by which you are informing the conscience. Do you see the difference? At least in how it sounds. We don't want to numb the conscience by 
forcing it and pressing it before someone's ready. No, we want to patiently inform the conscience. That's why he told Timothy, our instruction, our charge comes from love, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. We, just, we want to instruct. And that takes time. And so in the moment when you find you're in company with someone whose conscience is not as form, informed as yours, or you think is a, a weaker brother or sister, yeah, right now, in that moment, it's not the time to deal with it. You let it go. And you pray, and you think, all right, I want to build a relationship with that person if you don't have that. Or I'm going to say, hey, let's go get coffee, and we're going to go sit down and talk. And I just want to find out, hey, where did you hear that? Or, you, you know, you articulated something. Or, or you think, is, is my understanding, you think you, that Christians shouldn't do this? Is that right? Help, help me understand wh where you're coming from. And yeah, you're, you're lovingly trying to help them grow. But if you think you're going to do it in the middle of, of community group when someone makes a comment that just rubs you the wrong way, and you're not the leader, or the same goes for Sunday school, you're not the teacher. It's not your place to give everybody a lecture. And by the way, you're not acceptable, God, and you're not being acceptable to anybody else in the room. Until they grow, look in verse 22. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So the belief, the conviction... Your informed conscience, keep it between yourself and God. Now, what's he he's saying? Enjoy it. And I think you can apply this amongst yourself or even amongst people who you're in like company with. Enjoy it. You can do that. No one's saying you can't. No one's saying you can't believe those things or have your preferences when you're in the place of authority and control. But until then... Keep it between yourself and God. I want you to see this uh, maybe a little more tangibly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go there. I've got it up on the screen as well. I think this text is fascinating and just even, I think, challenging modern evangelicalism, what we would think is right and the goal of the church. Lots of implications of it. Probably can't draw out, but Nevertheless, it's here. 1 Corinthians 10, 27-28. And just so you know, this is uh, Corinthian church was debating, can you go and eat meat because it came out of the pagan temple? Paul says, yeah, you can. In fact, if you're over at an unbeliever's house, for evangelistic purposes, you've got evangelistic relationships. You're, you're at somebody's house, he's... Look at what he says. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, you want to go? Eat whatever is set before you without raising a question on the ground of conscience. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about whatever they fed you and where it came from and what their beliefs are. You can enjoy it. But notice what he says. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Now, who's the someone? This isn't, he isn't saying that the, uh, the, um, the person who invited you over says, and by the way, this was in honor of the Greek god Olympus. 
oh, can't eat it now. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you brought along another brother and sister in Christ, and he says, this is honor. This, this meat came from the meat market as I sacrificed to my, my God, and they look at you and they say, we can't eat this. We got to get out of here. I know what you're in temptation. Some of you are going to be like, oh, my word. I, I chose the wrong person to go on, on this visit with. <laughs> Your temptation might be, eat it and shut up. That's what I sometimes say on the mission field when, uh, when they lay out <laughs> goats and some people begin to, well, I got to go to the restroom. Yeah, you did that 10 minutes ago. Sit down. <laughs> it's not the same exact situation. He says, but this is fascinating. We would think, all right, I'm on an evangelistic encounter. Imagine this. This is probably more our, our, our steam. They said, hey, guys, I got some drinks for you. And, and they, pop, they lay out a beer in front of you. Now, how we navigate all that, I'm not trying to deal with. I'm just saying that's probably where there's alcohol. We got to go. That would be the, kind of the, the situation. But he says, do not eat it or do not drink it. For the sake of the one who informed you. That is that fellow Christian, that weaker brother or sister. Why? For the sake of conscience. I think this is fascinating. He says offend, although I think most people will be fine. Hey, hey I, just, I don't want any of that. I'll just have the vegetables or I'll just have water. I've never found that I've actually offended an unbeliever when I've turned them down. But even if you were, he says offend the unbeliever so you don't offend the weaker brother for the sake of their conscience. Why? Well, for all the reasons we just looked at. But it's here you see there's situations where you can enjoy it and situations you can't. You've got to know, you've got to be wise when to speak, when to do, when not to. And so here Paul is talking about enjoying your liberty, but if a weaker brother shares their doubts, you're to refrain for the sake of their conscience. And so look at the end of verse 22. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. He says, keep this between yourself and God, or, or, or the people that you can enjoy that with, and you can have those conversations, and you want to debate those finer points of theology, you can do it in that kind of sphere. That you know you're not causing a stumbling block to everybody else in the room, or to some in the room. He says, is it enough for you that you know that you're right, and that God knows you're right? Do you see what he's saying there? How blessed it is to know that you're approved by God. It becomes pride when you said, no, but I want everybody else to know that I'm right. You see that? It becomes a matter of, I actually just want my way. I don't really care about the kingdom of God. I actually don't care about anybody else. I just want my preferences. And Paul says, then have them your way at home. Do it there. And if you can't live with that, the problem's with you. Now again, just so you know, there is no backstage tensions here. I'm just being forthright, okay? But then on the other side, the week, whatever the situation, Sunday school, community group, 
You're on a visit at someone's house and they serve something. Or the music they're about to play or whatever it might be. The one who doubts, that is the one who's not convinced their faith they don't believe that's right. They don't believe that's true. They're not convinced that. They don't have understanding. He says, verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because the eating isn't from faith. He doesn't think, he doesn't believe that that is good and right, even though they're wrong. And so Paul says, so whatever, and, and I like, notice that. He moves from eating to whatever. He does it again in, in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do what? Anything. He, he broadens the application there. And he explains what he means. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's why we want to prioritize their faith. I want, as a pastor, and your other pastors, and your leaders, and your Sunday school teachers, and community group leaders, if that is all of us, this is our goal. In the moment, at the time, we want them to grow in their faith and trust in Christ. And we need to do it in such a way that they're actually growing in their faith. We're not dragging them along before they're ready. You get that? So, if I preach something controversial, that never happens. And you're in community group and, and people are disagreeing. Now, that's the community group leader's job to keep that thing under control. If it becomes disparaging or, or undermining of leadership, that's not okay. But there's someone who just says, yeah, I just don't read it that way. The goal right there is to discern, okay, is, do I have spots? Are they asking? Are they ready for me to say, well, this is why I think your view is wrong? Or maybe you got to discern right now they're not going to receive that. And if I push that and everybody begins to pile on on that person, we are destroying them. Do you get that? That happens. I've been in the room. Someone says something that is uncouth. And the dogs start running into the room. And we're going to fix this right now. And I actually don't think when that happens that the people are doing that are aware. And that's what I want us to be aware. Be aware of what you're doing. They're not ready. And oftentimes you're not going to be the one to inform them. We want them to grow in faith. And as they grow in faith, as you and I grow in faith, we'll be more receptive to these things in due time. Do you see that? I hope you do. So this is Paul's overall point. Loving others isn't about insisting upon our rights, our liberties, our theological nuanced positions, but that we each are growing in our faith and trust in the Lord. And so if we prioritize love, the kingdom, and faith, we'll be pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding in this church. 
And when this happens, we'll grow together as a body. And, and some who struggle with a biblical concept will actually learn, I think, in due time. Is God in a spirit moves the church in the direction that he's wanting to move it. And this, this is true even on, hey, we're going to pursue this endeavor missionally. I mean, all these things, we have to go at the pace by which God is moving his church. And so even if some lag behind, their weakness does not keep us from reaching people, does it? Does it, it doesn't hinder our own faith and our own worship as we come here and, and gather together. Honestly, all it does is it provides opportunity for you and I to learn the grace of God that's already been shown towards us. That's honestly what it is. It's an opportunity for God to be working in our hearts to say, do you really know the grace that I've shown towards you? Because I'm giving you one, two, three, several opportunities to learn that. And we shouldn't despise the discipline of the Lord. The Lord may be doing something in your heart, even though you're right, where you need to grow in the faith. And that's where I trust that as we continue to, to learn the scriptures and grow in the spirit of wisdom, the Lord will continue to grow us together collectively and he will use us to proclaim his gospel of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that whoever believes in him who puts their trust, even the, uh, the faith of a mustard seed in him. That mustard seed won't stay a mustard seed. It'll grow. But whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is, that is the weightier matters of the kingdom that we want to be emphasizing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for all the affection that you have shown toward us in your son. And Lord, it's my prayer for us as a church that your love would abound in our hearts and we would grow more and more in love and knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is truly excellent and what is good, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit that comes through your Son, and that all praise and glory and honor would be to you, God. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, to that, let's sing closing song and stand as we do so. Thank you.
you go, may you know the power of grace is very strength for what's to come. As you lead, may you feel his mighty hand guiding your steps in the race you run. go this morning and hear these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. And all God's people said, 